Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Clarissa and I are super excited for this episode of the podcast. But before I tell you about that, I have an announcement for those of you who have been waiting for group coaching to return. Clarissa and I are excited to invite you to a pre-launch of Sweet Sobriety with monthly group coaching. You will have the opportunity to join us five times a week each month for $25 US per month. To learn more or join us, go to www.sweetsobriety.ca. Now for today's episode. We at Food Junkies Podcast are so excited to bring you Dr. Jen Unwin, Heidi Yaver, Charlotte Schoen-Pulson, Frida Sandine, and Dr. David Wiss to discuss our audit of food addiction treatment and the first paper Jen has published on the findings. Dr. Jen Unwin, a clinical psychologist, works with the NHS, helping patients manage chronic illness and achieve well-being. She also works with her GP husband, Dr. David Unwin, helping patients stick to lifestyle changes. Dr. Unwin is a fellow of the British Psychological Society and a former chair of the UK Association for Solution-Focused Practice. Heidi Yaver is a nutrition consultant and lifestyle medicine practitioner, expert diabetes coach, and food addiction counselor with a primary focus on metabolic health, sustainable weight loss and healthy weight management, remission of diabetes, real food and holistic health, practical help with addictive food behaviors. She is also the director of Huntsland Nutrition CIC, a not-for-profit community engagement company with the tagline, health comes before all else. Charlotte Schoenpulsen is an alcohol and drug therapist, health coach, and nutritional advisor. She is passionate about dietary and behavioral effects on the mind and body. Frida Sandine is a holistic addiction medicine therapist, behavioral scientist, and nutritional advisor. She's a sober addict with a big heart to help others relate and quit the drug. Dr. David Wiss, PhD, is an advocate for change and improvement in the emerging fields of nutrition and behavioral health. Being a dietitian, he welcomes new ideas and encourages critical thinking when collaborating with other professionals, colleagues, and students. As a leading health nutritionist in Los Angeles, Dr. Wiss hosted several nonprofit conferences in Los Angeles that focused on controversial issues in nutrition. This led the California Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to award him the Emerging Dietetic Leader Award in 2020. Dr. Wiss has spent over 10,000 hours conducting one-on-one nutrition counseling to clients and families, both in person and virtually. Clarissa Kennedy, RSW, is a clinical social worker and the founder of Reinvent Your Bliss Point. She has a diploma in professional addiction studies and is a registered member of the Ontario Association of Mental Health Professionals. She has over 14 years of experience working with adolescents, adults, and families in a wide range of treatment settings, including residential treatment, outpatient services, and private practice. Molly Payne-Schaub, LCPC-LAC, is a dual-licensed mental health and addiction counselor and has worked in the field since 2005. She is co-chair of the Sugar and Food Addiction Professional Network and is a member of the Academy of Eating Disorders and in the Substance Use Disorders Special Interest Group. A special shout-out we need to make is to our statistician, Christine Dillon, without whom we wouldn't have any data, and the public health collaboration out of the UK for their support and backing to carry on with this exciting venture. So in today's episode, we talk about how did Jen and Heidi come up with the idea to audit food addiction treatment, the design of the audit study, what made the groups want to be involved, what did we audit, what did the interventions look like, the food plans, 
surprises, assumptions, and results? What do the findings mean for us as clinicians and researchers? What is the significance of doing this audit? What changes have been made to how we work with clients since running the study? What related research do we hope to see in the future? And what can we expect from each group moving forward? All right. Welcome all of you folks to the podcast and let's jump right in. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Food Junkies podcast. We are very excited about this episode as we are talking about our treatment audit of food addiction in our recently published paper. So first, because there is a lot of voices you're going to hear today, we're going to start with introducing the team. And so we have Team UK and that will be Heidi and then Jen. Can you guys just introduce yourselves, please? Sure. So my name is Heidi, Heidi Yebert. I am in the UK. I am UK team, but I actually come from Norway. And yeah, we've been, I've been working, Jen and I trained together in food addiction with Britton Jonsson. And that's really the, the background to, to why we're here, I suppose. But uh, we'll get into that in our discussions, won't we? So that's me. Hi, uh, yes, I'm Jen Unwin. I'm a clinical psychologist by background, also here in the UK, in the, in the North. And uh, yep, I just uh, told you how we kind of uh, got together and uh, the, the rest is history. And then next up, we have Team Sweden with Charlotte and Frida. Can you both introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm uh, Charlotte Schoen-Paulsen. It's, um, it's a partly Danish and partly Swedish uh, last name. I'm uh, born Danish, but uh, live in Sweden now. And Frida and I are, have joined forces in uh, Leva Sockefri, which we have been working together in since uh, 2016. Uh, I'm uh, an engineer and I'm also an alcohol and drug therapist and nutritional counselor and, and lots of other stuff really coming in handy when we talk about food addiction. And Frida is the one that got me on board as she wanted to start working with food addiction in 2016 and ask me to bring in the food stuff because she was not interested in preparing the food and the nutrition part. So that's where I came in and then it developed from there. Yeah, my name is Frida Sandin, also Team Sweden. Um, I am addicted to sugar. So uh, some way, uh, somewhere in the way I uh, wanted to start working with it. I'm a, um, what is it called? Health scientist or something in English. And I have been trained also by Bitten Jonsson. Uh, yeah, we have been working with this since 2016. Awesome. And then we also have the fabulous Dr. David Wiss, and he has so many academic accolades, and we will let him explain why he got involved with us. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, I do a little mental health research, mostly at the intersection of addictions and disordered eating. And I'm also a clinician as a registered dietitian nutritionist working with disordered eating and addictions here in Los Angeles. Group practice is called Nutrition and Recovery. And I have another site called Wise Mind Nutrition. Fantastic. And Molly and I were on Team North America. And Molly, why don't you explain how we got involved? Yeah, I mean, I think we should get into that a little bit in, in a little bit, but certainly I wanted to get involved in this, just my background being a dual licensed mental health and addiction counselor, and then having my own story of like reading Vera's book and kind of having some puzzle pieces come together around this idea of food addiction and what that could mean for myself or any of the clients that I was working with. 
and you and I met in 2019 and we also have teamed up. And so that kind of brings me to a bit to where we are today. I mean, I think our listeners know a bit more about us than, than these other folks, our guests today, but yeah, Clarissa, you want to fill them in briefly on you? Yeah. So I as well, social worker, I have my own story of eating disorder recovery, food addiction recovery, and also substance use disorder and been working in the field in addiction and mental health for many years. And so obviously Molly and I were working on a new project called Sweet Sobriety and Jen reached out to Molly to see if we would get involved in this. And so I think that's a good segue for Jen to kind of explain how did this all start let us know yeah how did we get into it well so Heidi and I trained together as you've heard and started talking about possible ways of taking the work forward particularly in the UK I've got a bit not not as much as uh, David but a bit of an academic background I had a number of posts in my career that were joint clinical academic posts so I I understood about the importance of not just assuming that you know even if you were doing you know, what you thought was best clinical practice, just assuming, you know, that the out, the outcomes are going to be good because, you know, you, it, it, it's so it's so hard to, to know that. And this is such a new field, right? And they, there's so little going on. And also some of you will know that my husband's a general practitioner. And for the last 10 years, we've been working in his practice to help people reverse type 2 diabetes drug-free, get drug-free remission and mitigation. And we'd very much run that project in a similar way because it was a new at the time it was I mean it's still quite a sort of (laughs) still quite a new idea but it's gaining ground but at the time it was a very new idea and actually you know some people were pretty horrified by by what we were doing so we gathered all kinds of data all kinds of health outcomes um, just to show you know that people weren't coming to harm that they were they were getting some help so so I had that background so we talked about setting up a project based on Bitten's learning you know if we were going to put everything together Together. And, you know, we, we were going to run this program, but we wanted to, to audit audit it and make sure that, you know, people were, were you know, and just look, look what the results were, do some learning, and then hopefully, you know, in, improve practice and be able to disseminate that as well. Also, when I looked at the I went and looked, tried to sort of dig out all the literature on on outcomes in food addiction interventions. And I did a lot of digging and didn't dig up any gold dust, at, hardly at all. I mean, there's very, very little data on outcomes, partly because, you know, in theory, this is a condition that doesn't exist. So there's no funding for research. There are people doing lots of fantastic work, particularly in the States, but not, not so much on, um, on outcomes, really. So that seemed like a, a real kind of hole in the space. And then we heard, I think it was Bitten that told us that obviously, obviously the guys in Sweden were, were running groups and you guys were, we knew you guys were running groups because we'd, we'd heard that as well. So we, we kind of said, well, you know, should we, should we make this thing a bit larger and, and get these guys to audit their outcomes as well? Because we, we seem to be doing very similar things. Have I forgotten anything, Heidi? No, I don't think so. I think there, there's, there is maybe one other other connection that came in at the time, the starting point, which was that I had taken on from Bitten the task of applying to the WHO for food addiction to be included as a distinct criteria from disordered eating and, and pretty much any, anything else. So, and then of course your work, Jen, with with looking at what what research is there to back that, because then we we formed a big team to to try and support that. David, thank you very much. You were part of supporting this for us. And then we realised that really there was so much need 
need, there's nothing out there of the evidence is what happens in, in clinical, different clinical approach to it. So yes, it was a, it sort of became a bit of a no-brainer. My my background was also working with diabetics. I come originally from, from being an engineer as, as Charlotte, a chemical engineer, but realizing that there are so many people who, despite knowing the theory and understanding what they need to do to put their diabetes into remission, just simply can't do it. And these are intelligent people that that just there was there was clearly something beyond that. And then our of course our training made that a very good background to say, can we use what we've got? So yeah, that's and from a, I suppose from a, a partner's perspective, when we decided that we wanted to do it, we also thought that having looking at what was being done elsewhere and seeing whether there were parallels and whether we could make it broader and bigger so that we could have some some real statistical significance to this was also valuable in the process. That makes so much sense. And so I'm curious to know, like from Team Sweden, you know, what made you guys want to get involved? Because now knowing what was involved in all of this, like, did you know that going in? Like, were you looking for some sort of measurable outcomes as well? Like, what made you guys say, yep, Jen and Heidi, (laughs) sign us up? Well, I think it was really a no-brainer, Charlotte here talking. Uh, It was a no-brainer doing this because well, we've been working with this since uh, 2016, and we've been working with groups, and we've been working on one, with one-to-ones, and we wanted to have measurable data to really uh, pinpoint and be able to say, this is the right track that we are on, and this is really helping people. Because we we see that, or, or we saw that it's really the Wild West out there, and uh, there are so many different approaches. So we wanted to document what we're doing. And that was why we decided yeah, to, to just jump in with everything that we have, basically. <laughs> yeah, we didn't uh, think much. We did us, of yeah. course. Yeah. Well, the way that we've been working since 2016 is uh, with a mixture of group work with uh, like the approach that we have in, uh, in this and uh, some individual activities. So we thought it was very good to get this really ironed out in a way that's measurable and something that can be replicated and, and placed in, in with others doing the same thing. I think we had similar, Team North America had similar hopes for that as well. I'm really curious to know, though, David, why you chose to sign on with us lovely ladies and, and help us out. Like what, what, yeah, what was your inspiration to do that? Yeah, I am very much committed to seeing the field of food addiction science move forward. And I was very honored to be able to come on and just add some insight and expertise to the research process as well as to the manuscript. So I identify as someone that exists in the eating disorder field, and I've put forth a lot of effort to educate eating disorder clinicians about food addiction. I felt like I at times felt like I'm the only one that quote unquote believes in food addiction. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that I have a unique point of view about ultra processed food addiction and have um, a way of messaging it in a way that's friendly to the dissenting voices, to those that oppose of this point of view. So I was very much excited to see the outcomes of the audit and to you know contribute to the manuscript in a way that made it palatable to all disciplines. Yeah. And we so appreciate you for that because you've really, I mean, I'm just going to speak for everybody probably and just say like, you've really opened our eyes to a lot of things. I mean, all the head nods, nobody else can see this, but we can see this, right? 
that we needed that extra perspective because we've been so, you know, in the trenches with clients that sometimes we do need, right? Like we get into that echo chamber and we need some of that outside perspective, you know, so speaking of then like this audit and what we did, you know, Clarissa, do you want to share a little bit about like what our intervention in general looked like? Each team had a bit of a different approach to it, but overall we had a very similar approach. Do you want to talk a bit about it or at least what we did as Team North America? Yeah. And I think for sure, our reason for getting involved was we really wanted to incorporate some of the best practices that we'd already been aware of that were currently in the field field of addiction and how we could apply that to food addiction. We were looking at creating an intensive outpatient treatment program. And so when this came along, it was maybe a level down from what we were planning, but there was so much value in just the introduction to what this might look like that we got so excited to get involved. So for us, our program was 10 weeks. We did some psychoeducation around what is food addiction, what's mindful eating. Then we talked about, you know, the concept of abstinence and withdrawal, craving management, cross addiction. We did Week five was on hope where we shared some personal recovery stories of individuals actually who'd gone, been in the trenches and come out the other side. We invited them to group to speak to some of the participants. And then we went into cognitive distortions, unhelpful thinking styles, stress management, emotional eating, self-compassion which is a language that everyone in recovery needs to learn how to speak. And then we finished with body because that's kind of that last piece of the puzzle. And, you know, although it was 10 weeks, it was kind of like what we would like people to work on over the course of their life. But it was really incredible that we really just talked about food, I think, the first week and answered some questions the second week. And they, it was very self-directed in the food plans they chose. And then we talked about recovery and that was the beauty, I think, of our intervention, which I think is why it had such amazing results. Yeah. And so I'm curious to know, because I know, again, like each one of the, you know, like I think Sweden, you guys do 14 weeks, right? Team Sweden does 14 weeks. And I think Team UK does maybe 12. So I'm wondering, like, can you, oh, you guys do 10 as well. So jump in there and like, how we, did you do, we do 12? Oh, you do 12. Okay. So yeah, yeah talk 12. a bit about it a little bit. Like, do you do anything different or was there a lot of similarity? Uh, well, I can say I can say that there are lots of similarities. We also teach about uh, the addiction uh, disease in itself, and then we focus on the toolbox for resilience and recovery. And uh, well, out of the twelve weeks, we have one week where we talk about food. The rest is uh, really talking about all the other things that needs to be in place in life. Everything that we have to do between meals to stay in in, in recovery. So it's very similar. Go ahead, Heidi. No, I, I was just going to say that maybe I should have said a, a, a few words about how the the original design of the study came about, because this is what, what we're talking about. When we laid out the different programs, the three programs, the one that Jen and I designed, the one that you were working with in the States, and the ones that the Charlotte and Frida had been working on for, for years, there were a lot of similarities, which was one of the, the probably very confidence-building aspects of the, of the starting point that we were all already working on building awareness as the first step and then coming up with very practical tools 
that people would be able to use. And I think one of the backgrounds for that, whether it was all in our independent thinking or just as part of designing this study, I can't say, but was that we wanted something that was both going to be potentially sustainable for the individual. So in other words, that it wasn't, it was something that they they would have tools that they could keep using and going over again. And as they learned that analytical process of how does this, these concepts that I'm learning, how do they relate to me and my situation? And what is that going to make me do differently? And then what can I learn from that? And then from what I've learned, what am I going to do next time that this happens to me? So it was very much that sustainability concept that I think was in all three programs. And the other bit that I think was, which was very much part of our study design was the fact that we wanted something that was simple enough and structured enough for us to be able to scale in some way or other. So if we come up with something that actually proves that it gives better outcomes than anything than anything that's available clinically today, is it then something that can be used, can be scaled up and easily used to train trainers to be delivered elsewhere? Because ultimately, of course, with what we know and our own experiences of food addiction, this is not a problem that's going away. It's a problem that's getting worse. And so if we can get to the more people we can get to and help, the better. So, but yes, I just, just wanted to add that sort of structure to it. Yeah. Thanks, Heidi. I think that's so helpful for understanding that piece of it. And so I know our listeners are curious about the food plan, because even though we know it's not always about the food, for most of us in the beginning, our information seeking stage, it's about the food. And so Jen, would you speak to, was there a specific food plan that people were required to follow? And if it was different, was there some commonalities? Yeah. So we we talked about people identifying, obviously, their, their own trigger foods and that, you know, generally these things are sugars, flowers and ultra processed foods, you know, that that's the kind of uh, umbrella thing. But then we we let them and we educated them about well, Heidi did this, all the lovely stuff around proteins and fats and how we build the body and brain and the things that we need to eat for, for our brains and our, and our well-being. And we more or less followed the plan. If people want to look, they can. So I've written a little book called Fork in the Road, which is available on Amazon. And it's not for my benefit. It's uh, the, all, the, all the profits go to a, a charity that, that we both support called the Public Health Collaboration in the UK. And on that website, there's also there are some pages about, about food addiction that Heidi Iron, and Ian Bitten have, have written that. Um, so there's resources there for people, but the little bit fork in the road, we more or less gave them that food plan, which has a kind of, you know, this isn't kind of black and white, but we've got a, a green, an amber and a red list. You know, generally these things are fine for people with food addiction problems. There's these things in the middle that, you know, some people can have uh, not be you know not be disturbed by and some people can't things like nuts and dairy and you know we all, the the things that are sort of uh yeah there's a sort of individual response and then and then there's what did i say first red or green anyway there's, there's another list that's uh you know there's green for go amber for caution and red for 
you know, probably most people can't handle these things, you know, the sugars, the grains, the ultra processed foods, and we put the sweeteners on that on that list as well. Although we know a lot of people struggle with those. I think for most people, we always say for most people, probably at the end of the day, it would be great if you got off those, but you know, some people use use the mini and trim. So there were, you know, lots of discussion around it. No hard and fast plan, not necessarily any weighing or, or measuring, unless that was something they wanted to do. But we did talk about what is adequate protein, because in our experience, and we've done a few of these courses in a residential setting, uh, people have just way out, <laughs> way out with their with their protein, and you know, the, and understanding the the need for that, and way out at estimating how much how much they need. So um, we we do talk quite a bit about protein. Is that good, Katie? Yeah, did she cover it? Yeah. Perfect. So, so Charlotte and Frida, did you guys have a specific food plan or was it a lot like what Jen and Heidi are describing for their program? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, it, the food plan was basically uh, we recommend a, a low carb diet and uh, we let people identify their drug food, which were a no go. And uh, then they had uh, their you could say their safe corner, their reliable food, which would be the green part. And then there would be the, the rest of the world food, basically. That would be something that they could explore or not at a later stage. But we recommend to uh, to stay with the safe food for, for a period to, uh, to get to learn your, your own responses. Yeah, so basically we uh, we gave some main guidelines, but the food plan is very individual depending on, well, yeah, where they are, where the client is, where is in life, what do they need to uh, take into uh, to account for their living situation. Some could be very square because they were living by themselves and, and others had to, to deal with yeah, other people in the house as well. Yeah, so, so you made an individual food plan. And as Jen said, it's about the, the dairies and the nuts. Uh, a lot of people can eat them and a lot of people can't because then they eat the, the whole uh, bowl. Yeah, I would say we were very similar. It was very self-directed. It was just remove whatever things are lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree. But, you know, we had a lot of our participants that were still eating fruit, that were still eating grains, that were still using sweeteners as a, you know, either as a bridge or they tolerated them, you know, whatever it might be. We were very much like, we want this to be as inclusive as possible. And we only want you to focus on growing that abundance of like anything that works for you. And if it's questionable, you know, we'll get to it. But at this point it was kind of like, just remove like the, the major offenders that you can like easily identify. So I would say we had very similar approaches to the food plan for sure. But I'm really interested because David, you came on board and I've never done anything like this before. I think I took a few courses in my undergrad psych stuff, you know, so I can read a research paper, that kind of thing, and have an idea of what I'm supposed to be looking for and like what to watch out for. But I'm really curious to know, you know, you coming on onto this project and, you know, did you have any sort of like assumptions or theories about what we might find? Were you surprised at all by anything? Was there anything that really tracked with what you know to be true based on your research? I'm really interested to dig into that science part of it, if you'd be willing. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, most notable 
finding from the audit is that, you know, group education and social support work, right? And that's what we know from addiction treatment. That's what substance use disorder research shows is that when people are educated about addiction, whether it be the the brain disease model or about resilience and recovery and do so with other people who are on a similar path, the outcomes are very different than when people try to recover in a vacuum. And I think that is the the real finding, the real theory of addiction recovery is that together we can accomplish what people could never do on their own. So I think that taking the powerful tools from substance use disorder recovery and applying it to food use disorder is very brilliant and much needed. And I anticipated that people would do much better in group settings than they would do alone. I I think that trying to recover from food addiction in a vacuum where there isn't other people on a similar path and people feel alone in the food environment is a very difficult thing to do. And the reason why a lot of people are against, you know, really specific food addiction plans at the individual level. But, you know, when we start thinking about groups communities, population health, I think we're getting somewhere. Yeah, I think that's, oh, go go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that's so important because it really is that I always experience this with individuals I work with and when they finally feel seen and heard and believed that these foods aren't working for them and that that's okay for them not to include them in their way of eating. And so I think exactly what you spoke to, David, is that we can start to approach this on more of a public health level rather than just, oh, you identify specifically as food addiction, you're on the spectrum as severe, and this is what you need to do. We can start out early, that pre-intervention piece. So thank you so much for that. I'm wondering, Jen and Heidi, what were some of the surprises that you found from your treatment group? So go on, Heidi. I think, yeah, if I, if I can just pick up on exactly what you were both saying there, David and, and uh, Chrissy, about doing it in groups. I think the biggest, one of the, the nicest surprises was how incredibly important that group dynamic was to individuals as well. That, that we, and we get it time and time again. We get people saying to us, Gosh, I had I had no idea there were other people that felt like me about food. I had no I thought I was entirely alone. And that's, you know, that's probably the big theme that comes back again and again and again that they you know use as an as an endorsement and recommendation for others to to join the program. So I think that was one thing. And the other thing that surprised me, Jen, and I, I, then I'll hand over to you, but is the fact how important the learning process of how to be com- more compassionate with yourself was to them. This recognition that actually one of our challenges is that we beat ourselves about all the, the little failures. We focus on failure, failure, failure all the time. And that actually part of the recovery process is recognizing that it's not failure. It's just my learning process. I'm richer for the experience and that my recovery, actually my, my falls or what I previously called failures are actually are, are, are not that at all. But I just need to learn to, to pat myself on the back and congratulate myself for picking myself up instead of, of focusing on, on the negatives all the time. 
But I must say, I'd, I'd like to say at the same time that, of course, one of the huge advantages I have in working with Jen on this is with Jen's experience as a clinical health psychologist with, with her vast experience in the area of hope and positive psychology. Of course, we've been able to go into depth in that area of the recovery process as well. Mm. So what did I miss, Jen, of our surprises? Well, I mean, the main thing, I, I don't know if looking back it should have been a surprise but one thing that I was really really pleased about was that we, we didn't really pre-screen people we just put a plea out on social media you know who wants to join our program are you a food addict and what's brilliant is that people know that that's actually a screening process in itself people are really reliable and knowing if that's the case for them so 100% of our people that then finally kind of did the craved and the YFAS were screening positive for food addiction so it's not you know it's a term that's banded about isn't it oh I'm addicted to chocolate and you might you might have thought well we'll get loads of people who maybe have you know some for harmful use or they you know they have some struggles with food but they they wouldn't really you know come into the food addiction category but people seem to be really capable of judging whether that's a serious problem for them and they, and they and they join the program so i i thought that was great that you it's actually you know if you're in a clinic and in fact david does this now in his clinic a lot you know do, do you think it's possible do you think you have a bit of an addictive relationship with with the with certain foods and that seems to be a really good screening question in, in and of itself so uh, yeah so that was great Right. What about you, Team Sweden? Any surprises or like findings that you didn't expect? Well, I don't know if uh, there were things that were surprises or like that. But what we realized really measuring things is that the group is more important than we than we actually anticipated in the beginning and that the group is very important for the learning process in our our bigger groups uh, we divided people into smaller groups for for discussion in in certain uh, parts of uh, of the 12 weeks and uh, they got to know each other a little bit better and yeah they, we have really good feedback on that so that mirroring uh, reflection of yourself in, in other people in, in the group setting, we found to be even more important than we perhaps thought in the beginning. Yeah, I think that's so true. Even in our group, when we did have some individuals who were a little further in their recovery and they kind of modeled that vulnerability, mm -hmm. it was incredible to see how quickly others opened up and really shared more about the true nature of their relationship with some of these foods. And Molly, do you want to comment more on some of the surprises that we found? Yeah. I mean, I think we had similar findings to everybody, but I think the biggest surprise that I had was that, you know, in that initial paper that we released, which had very, it was a, you know, low numbers because we only had so much data at the time that that was starting we had the highest dropout rate of all of the groups. And, you know, as everybody's hearing, like we've done everything similarly, right? Like we have similar education, we have similar food plans. We had similar, like just formatting of, you know, like whether it be like a pre-recorded video and then a process group or all the processing at one time. Um, so I think that was probably my biggest surprise from our group specifically, which I would love to have the opportunity to chat more about, like why we think that happened for Team North America. Was it something, you know, I did as a clinician, you did as a clinician? Was it, was it something about the severity of the folks who were joining our group? You know, I think there are just so many variables that we probably can't narrow it all down, but I think it's a lovely conversation. And Jen, you have a thought on that. You go ahead, jump right in there. <laughs> 
Well, we ought to mention the lovely Christine Delon, who's who's done all our statistics for this study for for free. And she's a link to the public health collaboration as well, and she's she has already had a little look, and we might do a lot more of this kind of in depth stuff in hopefully in the next paper. But it does seem like people with the the much higher BMIs were more likely to drop out, and I think that may have applied to your first group they they don't seem to do quite quite so well so that's one possibility but um, we can look at we can hopefully like we said when we've got some more data maybe look at you know are there other other factors that seem to predict dropout well that i mean i was i th- i think the retention rates were, were really good actually because it's quite an sure. intense program you know people yeah. were coming every week for 10 weeks <laughs> well especially uh, for people who we had asked right that you've never had anything like this in your past we're asking them to come in and give us multiple hours a week between the education and the process group, for sure. You know, I think also we recently interviewed Dr. Ellen Vora, who is a psychiatrist. She just wrote a book, Anatomy of Anxiety, but she has within the book, she talks about food addiction and some of her own journey. And we had the opportunity to have a conversation with her. And I asked her the same question, you know, I kind of like alluded to like, Hey, we had this dropout rate. And I'm really curious as to like what this might be. And she had said, you know, Hey, listen, when we go overseas, when we go to Europe, when we go to countries other than America, Canada, that kind of thing, the food is actually different that, you know, that there are ingredients that are allowed in the United States that are not allowed in the countries that you guys live in. Right. And she talks specifically about like glycosate, glycos, am I saying that word right, David? Somebody like, like, yeah, thank you. Like roundup on our food, that kind of thing and how that can potentially be a variable in some of this. So I think it's a, like a really great conversation to have for sure. But before we get to that conversation, if we get, if we have the opportunity to come back to it, maybe that's for another day. I'm really curious to know, like, based on these findings, like from a clinical perspective, you know, what does this mean for you guys moving forward as clinicians? Like, how are you going to use this first findings? We're still collecting data, Charlotte and Frida. I think you guys are still with a group or you're wrapping up soon with your final group, but yeah, we're we're running our final group now. Awesome. Yeah. So like, what does this mean? Like, will you guys change anything in Sweden based on what your findings or does it just back up what you've already been doing? So you're going to keep it the same. And for you guys in the UK, does that change anything for you guys? Uh, in, in Team Sweden, uh, well, we, we will take some learnings out of this, uh, especially on, on the group part. Basically, we will continue as, uh, as we've done previously, and uh, now we will have good numbers uh, backing the strategy that we're working with and um, the methods that we're working with, that it actually works. Uh, and I think that gives good confidence in, in what we're doing. Awesome. What about you guys, Jen, Heidi? Does it change anything for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, the same really as, as Charlotte is saying there, I think it, it gives us confidence that we're offering people something that's got some evidence behind it. And you can actually explain that to people, you know, that if when people follow this program, you know, these, these are the outcomes they get. We, as I alluded to before, we've run a few, what we've done is done exactly the same program over from like Friday lunchtime to Sunday lunchtime over a weekend, which you can imagine is pretty intense for people, but it does mean that they're there in person and we get to feed them and talk to them about this much. Look, look what it looks like, this much protein or, you know, this is what I'm choosing to eat. And we can, you know, really talk about the, the food, but also really get into the support side of things. And we we are asking those people to fill in the same data. So we're quite interested to compare, like, does that intensive in-person thing, is that as effective as this or, you know, maybe more, who, who knows? Really, our aim is 
to use this as, as a, a launching pad, as Heidi was saying, to work out how to train. Can we train other people to re- run these groups? Because there's so many, <laughs> so many people that, that need this help. If you look at the prevalence of food addiction, it's going to be 5 million adults in the UK would be, you know, so Heidi and I are never going to help 5 million people in the UK. We need to find a way of disseminating um, that uh, that programme, training other people to do it. And we're going to be, we're trying to develop courses for healthcare practitioners just in the recognition and screening of food addiction and some suggestions for them and where they can signpost people. So that that's kind of a bit where we're going next. Have I forgotten anything, Heidi, there? No, I think I think that's, you know, it, it informs our work that we're doing within the public health collaboration, exactly as you as you said, I think maybe the only other thing, but it's slightly that's a bit further away is that for me in my other projects, it does just reinforce the importance of how the next step is to be preventative and try to get to children and, and young parents before they develop the extent of the addictions that we see in the study, but also in our other work. So yeah, mm. it gives us some interesting data that we can talk around and a starting point for really saying, hey guys, we need to to the preventative side as well here. What about for, oh, go ahead, Charlotte, you wanted to jump in there, go ahead. Yes, Jen, you, you pointed out something very, very interesting, train the trainer. And uh, that's actually one of the things that we have started with now in Sweden, as we have taken over the HMA from Bitten in Sweden. So Bitten is doing it in, uh, in foreign language, English, American, and we will be doing it in Swedish with our colleagues in uh, in Sweden. So Liva Sockerfri is one, one practitioner in, in Sweden. Then we have Sockerskolan, which is another practitioner in, in Sweden. And we've together formed a company called No Addiction Academy. And we are actually educating addiction specialists now for with focus on sugar addiction. And one of the things that they will be uh, taught is how to run groups in basically this format. And that's a one-year education that they will be attending. That's awesome. I'm excited for that to, to see how that goes. David, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I think I was, you know, brought on to the project to be critical at some points and bring an eating disorder informed lens. And so I think it's important to add that the Yale Food Addiction Scale and the Crave Measure and other screening tools for food addiction are not perfect. In other words, you know, definitely have a high prevalence worldwide. The recent systematic review was about 20%. But people with clinically significant eating disorders tend to score very, very high on these, with bulimia nervosa being 80-90%, individuals with anorexia nervosa, binge purge type being 70-80%, people with binge eating disorder uh, following shortly thereafter. And it's not to suggest that people can't have food addiction and an eating disorder. And the presence of an eating disorder doesn't make the food addiction signal invalid. However, because it's a self-report measure, there are a lot of people that have eating disorders that are gonna be drawn to food addiction messaging. And they're gonna be very attracted to that sort of group education and that sort of message. Perhaps they're very body dissatisfied and they don't identify with eating disorder recovery. So they're gonna be very much seeking food addiction treatment as a way to reduce weight, eat less highly palatable foods. And I think that's something that our field needs to be very, very careful about in that if we are gonna train trainers 
we do need to train people to have knowledge of eating disorders and the potential harm that can be caused by food addiction, education, and treatment. Yeah. Which and is, I, so go ahead, Clarissa. Course, I was just going to yeah. say, yeah, you want to speak to that? We certainly found in our group that we talked very openly about that as well and wanted to make sure that for any individuals who we felt during the screening process may have completed, shown up with food addiction. However, through conversation, we spent at least half an hour which, with each candidate. And it's those conversations that we have where we can start to identify some of, are you trying to use this as a way to release weight or, and then it, we, we, or understood. further restrict. Yes. Yeah. And we, mm-hmm. we understood in that case that, you know, that's why we really wanted to be as inclusive as possible and make sure it was just maybe ultra processed foods and that it was for them ha- causing them. Maybe it was binge purge, but it was, they were only binge purge with the ultra processed foods. And so in that case, we would then identify and say, okay, those would be the foods you need to remove for right now, include all other foods, because I think that is so important. And I think like clinically for us, it really, because we had been working on sweet sobriety and we really just want to help everyone with a disordered relationship with food And this baseline approach, we weren't actually convinced that we were going to get the results that we got. We thought because we were seeing people one-on-one that were reaching out to us that it would need more an intense intervention. But I think the people that were reaching out to us were all severe. And we were getting some individuals with mild, moderate, maybe disordered eating, eating disorder, And this just shows this intervention has so much promise for so many people. And I think that was the beautiful part of, you know, it just showed us like there is a much more public way, inclusive way, and that you don't just have to identify with food addiction. Maybe it is just like, I'm trying to figure out what a relationship with food and a healing relationship with food can look like and how that'll improve my well-being in the end. So I think it validated that we were doing what we should be doing, that this community that we're creating is going to be so important. And that again, there, there really is just no one way to treat this and that everyone has their own way. And so for some people, this is a great fit for some other people, they may need more intensive approach and that's okay too. I would like to add that the same way the eating disorder community can argue that certain food addiction treatment could be harmful to people with restrictive eating disorders. The food addiction community can argue that classic eating disorder treatment can be harmful to people with food addiction. So it's not just one side or the other, but both arguments and they're both valid. I agree. And so, you know, we try to be, because we are so inclusive, I think Clarissa and I try really hard to create that culture within our groups, whether it be the psychoeducation or the process groups. And so even if people were showing up with some sort of mixture, I don't think that we were increased. Obviously we didn't show an increase in harm in any way, shape or form in our results. We had a high dropout rate. Sure. But we didn't have this increase in harm because nobody was there to judge anybody, right? Like we were all in it together. We were in the same storm, but we were in our own individual boats and we really tried to, you know, keep your eyes on your own plate. Like you're doing your own thing, but you get to have this community to reach out. And so I think like that bolstered for me, 
like I had this idea coming from the, you know, like quote unquote, traditional substance abuse background, treating other addictions, right. And bringing all of those tools that those recovery concepts to this, it was just really neat to see that then like validated in what we were doing. But I'm really interested again. I'm so interested in the science. Like I do this every day and I get to talk to these ladies like all the time, David, we get your time so infrequently. So I'm really curious to know, you know, what significance will this work have in the, like in the research world, if any, you know, is it important that we've released this first paper and hopefully there are more to come and like, what sort of related research could or should come from it? If you could kind of speak to that for us. Yeah, I think it's the impetus for more trials using food addiction informed approaches. And I really think the study that needs to be done is, you know, the study where you use a food addiction model versus an all foods fit model and see what the outcomes are. And I think that rather than just, you know, randomizing people, which would be the ultimate test of that, I think in order to get the best outcomes, we should really, you know, assess who would fit better for each model. And that's a very complicated process, but in the meantime, you know, randomizing to two groups and seeing which fares better would be amazing. And then taking it one step further and being able to look at the characteristics of people that do better given the different approaches, being able to discern which people should get which approaches. And then where I'm interested is not in having two different approaches, but in hybrid tailor-made models for individuals where you bring in wisdom from these different domains and decide maybe someone has food addiction but would benefit from a harm reduction approach. Maybe someone has an eating disorder and needs to be inclusive but might be a little bit more deliberate and intentional about their food. So having different arms for different trials where people get different interventions, different education, different food, And those are studies that are sorely needed in the uh, nutrition and disordered eating space. Oh, I absolutely agree. That would be amazing to participate in. So Jen, then what is next? Should we be expecting more audits, research? What's on the horizon? Well, obviously, we're still gathering the the data, all of us. So we're kind of thinking that the next paper would be the six-month, one-year follow-up data, because that seems a really, it's really great to have these slightly longer follow-ups, because a lot of studies would only get, like when we publish, the sort of before and after. Well, really, like we've been saying, you know, this is a lifelong condition. We've hoped we've given people the tools. So interesting. And I don't know what to expect, really, of the the outcomes at six months and one year. And then, yeah, for, for us, obviously, you've heard that we're, hopefully going to go on and just look into you know maybe developing some courses and thinking about train the trainers and we've still got to do so i've done we've done the fork in the road book heidi and i have done a fork in the road journal which is a hundred day journal for people with food addiction or the or like david saying you know concerns around their relationship with food for them to sort of reflect on that over a hundred days beautifully done by this uh graphic designer this designer works with us and I mean, all of us, hopefully, when we all get two minutes to do it, are going to uh, collaborating on uh, developing a workbook based on the course that everybody's just been hearing about so that people could do some work on that in their own time or it would be a backup to the, to the courses that, that you guys are running or that we, you know, we're still running the, the, the actual in-person ones. So, yeah, a, a workbook at some point, hopefully. And again, still profits to the public health collaboration. 
Does that cover it, Heidi? What about you? What did, I know you're working on some children's education around this as well. Yeah, so we have a project in the public health collaboration called Collaboration for Kids. Um, dare I say it, as a much-needed antidote to KFC, which is really focused on processed, the risks of diets that are mainly based on processed foods, which of course is, is happening nowadays, unlike when we were young. I'm not speaking for you, David, because I don't know how old you are, but <laughs> the rest of us were probably not brought up on as much processed food as, as many, many children are nowadays. But yeah, so that's a project that I'm hoping. And and I should say, Jen is, a, is one of our expert advisors on that project. So that's one. The other thing is, of course, continuing to work on our application to the WHO for food addiction to be included. We we were rejected, but we don't feel that rejection was terribly robust. And so we're working very pragmatically to see if we can deal with each of their objections. And then maybe, of course, Jen and I are continuing to do more of these intensive programs. And then we're also looking at the partly related to the, the work with the WHO is to do a general survey of, of various cohorts in the population, as well as clinicians, to see what their opinion is of whether food addiction exists or not. That we're hoping to get out within a, a few weeks, I think. All very exciting. What about you, Charlotte and Frida? I know you are just already mentioned the training course that you're doing. And what else is next for you both? Well, we uh, we continue on our track of long-term treatment plans. So what is the core of, of what we do today is uh, we have the clients signing up for a two-year recovery plan, meaning that they are able to cry for help even when uh, the addiction logic pulls in a different direction. So two years is a good time period or, or a good period to, to work with the first year. You learn to fly, you get wind under you, underneath your wings, and then the second year you, you are actually throwing yourself off the cliff to see if, uh, if it holds. <laughs> and uh, the, the process of learning, basically. If you're, uh, the addicted brain uh, really needs to be able to visualize and, and to heal, and it, uh, and it takes a while. So um, that's, from our experience, the, the best way to do it, uh, to really be in, dig into it on the long term. So that has proven to be very effective. Yeah, I love it. We're always working towards that journey to ideal, right? Whatever that is for us. Mm -hmm. so I love that approach. David, what about, what is next for you? I think there might be an app sometime. That is true. But first, I want to state that I do think it'll be important for us in this audit and research process to look at those dropouts and those that had worsening outcomes, those outliers, I think doing some qualitative research and figuring out predictors and the uh, correlates of people who did not do well would be very valuable, especially with some qualitative interviews. I think that would be fantastic. I've been collecting data in my private practice for two years now, and I'm coming up on 300. So yeah, I've got intake data on food addiction, eating disorders, childhood adversity, PTSD symptoms. So I'm hoping to, uh, I haven't analyzed any of it. I've been patient. So I'm looking forward to running some models soon. And yes, I have an app coming called Wise My Nutrition. That is a food logging system based on the framework that I created and some education that I think would work very well for people with food addiction 
and can also work well for people with eating disorders and is designed really to target people with depression, anxiety, and just overall mental health challenges. And it's really exciting. I've been working on it for so long and it's so close and I just can't wait to share it with the world. Well, we will definitely have you back on the show when you do launch it. So you can tell us more and our, allow our listeners to kind of get the framework of it all. So we are excited for that, David. Molly, what about what is next for us? Yeah, I feel like we have to tell the world though that, or at least our audience, that David is on the TikTok. So if you are, so if you use the app TikTok, I love David's videos. Um, he's so sassy. He's so good. I love it. It feels like, you know, drop the mic every time, but just in a very educational kind of way, definitely makes, you know, you think about some of your own personal biases and really kind of like checks some of our thinking. So I do just want to like plug that for you, David, because I find it so, I love it so much. So for us, by the time this episode comes out, we'll certainly have pre-launched Our Baby Sweet Sobriety, which is monthly group coaching along with these foundational modules that we not only did we use with the group that we audited, but that we've expanded on and really grown and increased just based on some of those like things that we learned along the way with working with clients and just pieces that we picked up. You know, I'm a member of the Academy of Eating Disorders in a special interest group with Dr. David West, who is here with us and Dr. Kim Dennis, and just really learning more about the intersection of eating disorders and food addiction and wanting to make sure that that is included in these modules as well. So that will all be, by the time this this episode is available, that will have launched and you guys can reach out to us and we'll give you more information if you want. So that's what's next for us. Did I miss anything? It's no, I think, I think that's good. That, that, we, we're trying to be do less this year, maybe, maybe. I don't know if that's possible. Anyways, I just want to thank everyone for being here today. This has been such an honor to be able to sit down with all of you. It's been a dream team for both Molly and I, and I just think that this is just the beginning and that's the most exciting part of this all. So thank you all for being here and I'm sure we'll have a meeting again soon. Thanks guys. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.